What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thanks so much, Scott. And welcome, everybody. I'm Eamon Javers, back here with you at CNBC headquarters again, filling in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Capitol Hill meets crypto, the digital currency caught in the middle of Congress's attempt to move the infrastructure bill forward. We'll look at what's at stake there. Plus, the billionaire versus the brokers will speak with former hedge fund manager John Arnold on his battle against firms like Fidelity when it comes to charity. And the newest way to make money in housing, even when you're not selling your house. How do you do that? Stick around, we'll tell you. But we begin with today's markets, and Dom Chu has all the numbers. Dom, what is going on today? So, Eamon, we are just pulling back from record highs that we saw on Friday for the Dow and the S&P 500, but not by a lot. You can see the Dow Industrial is just down by about 70 points so far today, about a quarter of 1% to the downside. The S&P 500 just about flat on the day, only down about three points. And the Nasdaq outperforming, if that's what you want to call it, up about two-tenths of 1%. Not close, or just about close to its own record high, so we'll keep an eye on the Nasdaq composite. With regard to some of the weakness in the market today, a lot of the downside is being driven by some of the fears around the COVID Delta variant and what it could do to the economy if things start to slow down, maybe even shut down or restrict again. Check out Marriott International on the hotel side, down 3.5%. Live Nation, concerts and live venues, down about 3%. And American Airlines and United Airlines, two of the worst performers in that transportation group, down about 3% as well. So watch those transportation and reopening type plays. And then the biggest gainer in the S&P 500 by a wide margin so far today, a record high for shares of Moderna, up 16% so far, 360% gains just so far this year. They get two big conditional approvals, one in Australia for its COVID-19 vaccine, and then one in Switzerland for use on a temporary basis in children aged 12 to 17. That's driving a lot of the upside there. And just to give you a, a kind of contextual move about this, Eamon, this is now a company that's worth roughly $190 billion. That's important because what does that make it as big as? Pharmaceutical and drug giant Merck, the same size as Moderna now. Back over to you. Dom, thanks so much for that. A little bit like Back to the Future when you see some of those names that got clobbered last year getting hit again this year. A little bit disheartening as we watch that Delta variant continue to spread. But meanwhile, inside the Capitol right now, debate is taking place on a $1 trillion infrastructure bill with a vote likely going to happen late tonight, although that can always change as the Senate makes up its rules as it goes along. But as the details make their way through Capitol Hill, we're covering two key issues here for you. The two C's. First, crypto, which has become a last-minute sticking point as the Senate looks toward regulation, and second, climate, as the U.N. drops a bombshell report on climate, which it calls a code red for humanity. What does this bill do to address the climate concerns? Let's begin with Elon Moy on the infrastructure bill and where it stands right now. Elon, it is infrastructure week again, or still, or whatever you want to say, but this is happening this week, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it looks like this is finally going to happen. The Senate will hold a final vote on the infrastructure package no later than early tomorrow morning. And lawmakers are hoping to push through a last minute fix for the crypto industry. Now, this bill creates new IRS reporting requirements as a way to pay for that trillion dollars in spending. But the industry feared that those regulations would be overly broad, sweeping up not just the exchanges, but also miners and node operators and validators as well. So today, GOP Senator Pat Toomey announced compromise language that he said has the backing of key Democrats and the Treasury Department. It focuses on the type of transaction being conducted rather than the type of technology. A year from now, there will be all kinds of new innovations that we haven't thought of that probably nobody's thought of. And we may very well have to go back and revisit the rules. But what we shouldn't do is have an overly broad mandate, a reporting requirement on people who can't possibly comply. Now, that was the industry's main complaint, with everyone from Jack Dorsey to Elon Musk to Brian Armstrong of Coinbase accusing the government of picking crypto winners and losers. Now, still, it would take unanimous consent in the Senate to make the change this late in the game. So, Eamon, it's not entirely clear that despite this agreement, if the new language will actually make it into the final version of the bill. Back over to you. So, Elon, what are the chances there? I mean, they can do anything that they want right up until the last minute. Do you think we're going to see some language change here uh, in the next couple of hours? I mean, people have been watching this all through the weekend, watching that definition of who has to file these 1099 forms in terms of crypto. You think we're going to see a change here at the last minute or you think things are going to be pretty much locked down? Yeah, I think it's going to be a nail biter, Eamon. We're expecting something to happen on the floor of the Senate around 3.30 this afternoon. So, you know, keep your eyes there for uh, for any more developments. But, you know, because you need 100 senators or 99 in this case, because one senator is in quarantine to agree to this in order for it to happen. You know, that is a very high bar to clear, higher than the normal 60 vote threshold. Uh, you need to see bipartisan legislation passed. So I'll be watching at 3.30 and hopefully you guys will, too. Elon, thanks so much. We know you'll be keeping your eye on it for us for the rest of the day. Let's drill down now on the implications of these last-minute regulations on the crypto landscape. Joining me now is William Quigley, one of the co-founders of the stablecoin Tether, the co-founder of GoCoin, and VC firm Cryptocurrency Partners. William, you heard what Elon just said in terms of the debate up on Capitol Hill. What is the issue here right now from the cryptocurrency industry's perspective? What's the problem with this bill? So you have you have two uh, broad issues. One is uh, a revenue enhancement uh, part of the infrastructure bill, and this would be to tax crypto more than it's taxed now. And the other is uh, how the IRS in the United States will figure out which transactions are happening by who, and so who actually owes the, these tax bills. Uh, the 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 fact that there will be potentially thirty billion dollars of taxes that will be collected uh, over the next few years as a result of better tax compliance that it's hard to debate with because there's no underlying uh, assumptions built around that so somebody put in a figure in there uh, but we're not sure where it came from as far as the tax compliance goes there's there's always been an assumption that uh, cryptocurrencies uh, aid in the evasion of, of taxes. And while there's almost no evidence to support that, that's an assumption. And it's because it's anonymous. Who buys and who sells can be anonymous, not always. So what this infrastructure bill is, is suggesting 
is that we start to do a lot more reporting akin to what you see, let's say, when you open a bank account or when you do a stock trade. So what we call KYC, which is know your customer. This is uh, uh, sort of procedures that would be submitting your identification, uh, letting the crypto exchange that's selling your currency know who you are so that they can file reports with the IRS. Uh, the, that's not controversial because it turns out most businesses that are taking in uh, money in order to do something in crypto, they have to know who you are anyway, simply to make sure that there's not fraud, identity fraud or, or credit card fraud. The, the issue is more around who in this blockchain industry is going to be required to report. And if there is a centralized business like an exchange that has people you talk to who can request this, it's fine. But there's a number of things in blockchain where it's just software that you're, you're interacting with. It's a smart contract. Uh, in those situations, there is no individual who is operating that, that, that piece of software who could do the collection and the reporting. And uh, so I think it's more of an education problem for the, uh, the Senate to understand this so that they don't disrupt the entire cryptocurrency industry by asking for something that's simply not capable of being produced. I mean, I wonder how many senators have actually ever seen cryptocurrency on a screen anywhere. I mean, this is a demographic group that tends to be super old. And when it comes to technology across the board, senators are famous for being way behind the times. So when you look at this problem, which is a new problem, you wonder how much they really know what it is that they're dealing with and, and what the implications and unintended consequences could be. But I wanted to ask you about that point, William, that you just made about the idea that there's almost no evidence for tax fraud, because you're right. A lot of people do assume there's a lot of tax fraud going on here with these cryptocurrencies and that some of the customers might be getting into them because they think, here's a way I can make a lot of money and not have to tell the IRS about it. You say there's almost no evidence. How much fraud, though, do you think there actually is in there? And what percentage of all crypto buyers are brought into it by that desire to hide from the IRS? You know, maybe in the early days... Uh, 2010, 11, 12, maybe people thought that would be uh, a reason for getting into it. But these days, it's very hard to elude any authority who wants to ultimately track down who someone is. There's anonymity in blockchain because you can set up an account and you don't have to provide your your credit card, your 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 driver's license. But if you want to do anything with those cryptocurrencies, you want to sell them on an exchange you want to keep them in a wallet. Generally speaking, you have to report who you are to somebody. And there's a lot of analytics now, a lot of analytics companies that are very good at tracing these transactions back to the person who's been conducting them. So, so the tax man is going to get you no matter what. Great. Yeah. So it, it's almost a, a, a misunderstanding. Blockchain is actually, since every transaction is recorded, it's actually much harder to evade, let's say, paying your taxes than it would be, for instance, if you had a business and you were using traditional fiat money and putting money into bank accounts. So that, I think, is just a misunderstanding that can ultimately be corrected by explaining more. The problem we have here is that the infrastructure bill needs to be funded. And cryptocurrencies look like a juicy target because they're new and there is potentially a lot of revenue that the government could collect. So I think they're going at it from that perspective. We can get this money as opposed to saying, what's the best way to do it? 
unlike any legislation, there's a rush to get it done, to get a group of people to vote on it. Yep. Uh, so uh, that's the problem. We, we're kind of rushing into something that, frankly, the Congress has, has neglected for years. It's not been William. a secret that cryptocurrencies were... We're, we're taking over. William, thank you so much yeah. for your expertise. Uh, I hope to have you back on here once this bill actually passes and we can figure out where this debate landed, because it's very much, as Elon was just saying, a moving target for right now through the afternoon anyway. William Quigley, thank you for your time and expertise. And now for the climate discussion, the other one of our two C's today. Brady Dennis is a Pulitzer Prize winning national reporter for The Washington Post. He focuses on the environment and public health. Brady, tell me what you think the most important element of this bill is in terms of climate uh, and the Biden administration's push there. What's one piece in here that you think is going to make the most difference? Well, I think the, the biggest uh, question mark is how far it goes in, in uh, allowing President Biden to sort of um, live up to the promises he made on what he's going to do on climate, on the environment. I mean, there is obviously tens of billions of dollars in here for uh, clean energy funding, renewables, that kind of thing. A lot of money for communities, uh, you know, schools, businesses, other places to uh, work on being more resilient to some of this extreme weather we're seeing. There's money for, you know, charging of electric cars and all this. The main question mark is it's obviously not uh, the scale of spending on climate measures that um, a lot of Democrats and that the president wanted. And so I think, um, you know, an open question is how much do they try to come back in following legislation and, and fund those measures uh, in a much uh, more robust way. One of the big questions for investors in this is going to be how much funding is there for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging in particular. That's been one of the, the ping pong balls in, in this debate going back and forth. I wonder if you think that there's anything in this bill in terms of electric vehicles that's going to be a difference maker for that industry. I mean, we've got the infrastructure up and running now. A lot of it is Tesla based, but there is other infrastructure across the country. Is, is there going to be a transformational event here in terms of EV charging and therefore the availability of EV technology to a, a much greater number of Americans? I think it's a little bit of a, of a chicken and egg thing, right? I mean, yeah. where is the tipping point where, um, you know, a gr much greater number of Americans uh, decide that they're going to buy an electric vehicle? Is it at a certain price point? Is it a, a certain level of convenience when there's enough charging stations or, you know, whatever the, the infrastructure we're talking about here may be? And um, I think, you know, whereas the White House and Democrats are concerned, they want this bill and, and others that follow to, to fund that in a, in a way that speeds up that transition. Because from a climate perspective, you know, uh, certainly President Biden and his administration wants to speed that transition away from uh, certainly the gas-powered cars and uh, coal-fired power plants and that sort of um, infrastructure to a much uh, cleaner one that's going to be needed in the years ahead. So how, how quickly that happens, how big of a piece this particular bill is, um, I think still remains to be seen. It will certainly... Um, uh, add some infrastructure that wasn't there, does that really speed it up on a national level? Not, not quite sure. Yeah, it, it's a great debate and a good question, because no matter how, much, how you look at it, there's a lot of money at play in this bill. Thank you, Brady Dennis, for your perspective on all of this. And coming up, with stocks falling from Friday's record highs, are concerns over the Delta variant outweighing the optimism around infrastructure and the strong jobs report that we saw just on Friday? We'll discuss that. Plus, 
It's the battle of the billionaire versus the brokers. Philanthropist John Arnold is fighting to force donor-advised funds to give more to charity every year. We'll speak exclusively with him about why he's taking on the trading titans and going after their so-called warehouses of cash. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks lower right now with the Dow and S&P 500 retreating from last week's record highs. The Nasdaq slightly higher today. The surge in the COVID Delta variant renewing those concerns about global growth given the risks. Are stocks now overvalued? And given those risks, what happens if the Fed tapers anyway? Will it lead to a market tantrum? Well, joining me now to source through all of that are Bryce Doty. He's the senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates and Hugh Johnson, chairman and head of investment strategy at Hugh Johnson Advisors. Hugh, let me start with you in only in part because I have a son whose name is Hugh, so I'm I'm biased that way. Uh, But let me start with you because you said to our producers that you thought that stocks, despite that record high that we saw at the end of the week last week, were still undervalued. How is that possible, given Delta and given the Fed tapering out there on the horizon? How is it possible that you look at what happened last week and say, you know what, still undervalued? Well, if you're talking about tapering or if you're talking about the Delta, there are certainly risks in the market. But what we've seen this year is pretty straightforward. And what we've seen is is every step of the way we've had a rise in stock prices and you start to become a little bit concerned about valuation. But the next thing you see Right along with the rise in stock prices, as you see an increase in the consensus estimate for what earnings are going to be for this year as well as next year. So what you have this year is upward revisions to earnings. And this is very much, Eamon, a very, very much of an earnings driven market. But every time you get a move up in stock prices, you get a move up in the consensus expectation for earnings. So they're going in lockstep. And quite frankly, uh, the stock market's just a little bit behind and a little bit undervalued. So valuation is really not a concern. But I concede completely that if you get a little bit of tapering earlier than we expected, that's not particularly good news. And, of course, it's very hard to uh, estimate what the impact of COVID-19, the Delta variant, is going to be on economic output. Is it going to lead to the kind of lockdowns or shutdowns that we saw in, um, in March and April of 2020. I don't think so. I don't think that's in the cards, but you've got to worry about it. Hugh, what's driving those earnings expectations that you point to as the source of all this optimism? Is that just the reopening uh, affecting every company in every different sector of the economy, or is there something else going on here? Well, it's certainly reopening. I mean, when you get an earnings growth rate in the second quarter 
of, of 85.5% year over year, or for the year, 40% year over year, uh, that, a lot of that is just uh, recovery, but it's also what U.S. companies are doing. Take a look at the margins of U.S. companies. They're really doing very well, particularly when they've got some upward pressure on wages, which we see in just about all of the numbers. Some upward pressure on wages and obviously some upward pressure because of supply shortages on materials prices. But despite the fact they've been able to expand those margins. So in part, it's a recovery, which is a very strong and impressive recovery. But a big part of it is also what companies are doing. They're doing really well. Yeah. And Bryce, let me bring you in here. What are the areas of concern that you see out there? If companies, as Hugh says, are doing very well, the earnings expectations are bullish and optimistic. Are there areas of concern that you have looking at this outside of COVID and outside of the Fed? Well, clearly the biggest bubble from my seat as a bond investor are treasury bonds. I mean, they, they're yeah. in a bubble. You know, the 10-year yield is so low. And as much as the Treasury might have an impact on the stock market. That's where the stock market maybe isn't overvalued, but certainly I would, I would consider it vulnerable, vulnerable to a rise in rates if that, that bubble bursts. And what would it take to burst that bubble? That's where we get back to your, your thoughts on taper tantrum. Yep. If the Fed does start siphoning money back out of the economy, sure enough, that's what it will take to get yields to go higher. Because without their interference, without the massive money uh, injected as well by Congress, you wouldn't have yields as low as they are considering the inflation rates, where they are and what's going on uh, as we come out of this pandemic. So therefore, you know that, that they're the ones suppressing the rates. And as rates have come down, that's even pushed up equities even further. And so that's where where you might have some concern on the equity front. But that said, there still are pockets of undervalued areas, uh, both in the stock and bond market, where you can still make a decent amount of money here. Bryce, does timing matter on that? You, you talk about the Fed. I've been watching Steve Leisman on our air throughout the day, summarizing sort of what the Fed wise men and, and watchers are saying about the timing, whether that's a hint in September and then tightening later in the year or, or what the various scenarios are. Does it matter to the bond market, in your view, uh, whether the Fed begins to tighten this year late or next year early? No, it does. And that the goalpost keeps getting moved out as far as the timing of when the Fed does act. I, I'm now in the camp where I think that Powell's going to wait and see if he gets reappointed before he starts stirring the pot. So so that happens in February. So I don't think there's going to be any tapering between now and then. I think some, some ways you make money between now and then are, you know, you ride the tips bond uh, wave. We're making almost a, a point a month in principal accretion on tips for the last three months. The, uh, you know, to protect yourself against the variant, you, you go into the ETF germ, but you counterbalance that with an ETF that's tied to travel. Because I agree with you. I don't think we're going into a, a lockdown. So, so an ETF there is a way. You couple those together and you've got a pretty diversified portfolio between the tips uh, away and, and germ. Uh, the, other, the other thing that we're seeing out of Europe is they are opening. Okay, they they are experiencing inflation, and I think that's a stunner, right? They're finally experiencing inflation, and so I think that's directly due to uh, you know shipping costs and trying to re restock inventory. So be dry is another is another play to, that'll probably do well as the, as they reopen. So there's still pockets of opportunity, but the the timing is critical after 
after the first quarter of next year, I get pretty nervous. Bryce, I'm going to put a pin in my calendar on February. I'm going to hold you to that. We'll come back in February and talk to you about the taper that will begin by then. Bryce Doty and Hugh Johnson, thank you both so much for being here and sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, and coming up, Bank of America says there's still 40 percent upside in this casino name despite a massive rally over the past year. We'll tell you which name they're betting on and why. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. I'm Christina Partsnevelis, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Masks will be mandatory in Dallas public schools starting tomorrow. The superintendent going against a Texas ban on mask mandates. He says masks are required at least temporarily until he can protect staffs and students from the Delta variant. And then all in the news tonight, how are Florida schools dealing with rising infections and their own statewide restrictions on COVID rules as classes start tomorrow? Shep explains it all at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Texas Democrats lawmakers, or I should say Texas Democratic lawmakers, are returning home right now. They won a key legal victory barring them from being arrested for leaving the state and blocking a Republican voting bill. More than half of the Democrats who fled to Washington, D.C. are now back in Texas. And a federal judge showing skepticism, the new CDC eviction moratorium will stand up to a legal challenge by landlords. The judge says the updated moratorium is virtually identical to a similar ban which the Supreme Court has criticized, saying the Biden administration lacked authority to issue it. And there's your news for now. Amen. I'll throw it back to you. Christina, thanks for that. And coming up, the back-to-school blues. So early, it's only August 9th, but there are back-to-school blues. Record high rides, under inflation pressure, and vax to board the boat. It's all ahead on Rapid Fire. And welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire here to help break down the headlines. Our own Courtney Reagan and Mike Santoli and Gina Sanchez. She's the CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. First topic, the surging Delta variant could spoil what's expected to be a record-setting back-to-school shopping season. The National Retail Federation expects spending for K-12 through students to hit more than $37 billion this year. It also forecasts back-to-college spending to hit a regular uh, record $71 billion thanks to pent-up demand and the new child tax credits. But surging cases are putting a return to classrooms in doubt. The U.S. topped 100,000 new COVID cases on Saturday. Courtney, let's start with you on this. Uh, maybe it's the kid in me or maybe it's the fact that I was just at the beach over the weekend. I'm a little bit bummed that we're already talking about back to school and it's only August 9th. But where do you see this season playing out? Such an unusual, we've never had a back-to-school season like the one we're about to have, right? Yeah, you're exactly right, Eamon. And of course, it's different in different areas of the country as far as when back-to-school starts. I know I'm from the Midwest, and those kids are starting back here in just about a week or so, wow. even though in the New York City area, they start much later. So back-to-school is always a bit of a rolling season when it comes to purchasing as well because of that. And yeah, this is a year unlike any other because of what happened over the last 18 months with kids being taken out of school right away. Some went back, some didn't, some were masked, some weren't. And as Christina brought up in 
the news update, it sounds like the Dallas schools are saying, yes, you've got to send your kids to school in masks. And so I think parents are just unsure of really what to do and how to prepare. So we have these very strong forecasts from the National Retail Federation, from Deloitte, and they're all expecting this really strong year to sort of make up for missed time. But I think we just don't know exactly what's going to happen because of the way that we buy in sort of this rolling way, how schools will be back in session. And I think everyone is just unsure about what this Delta variant will do to consumer demand, even though so far all of the consumer CEOs that we've heard reporting in the earnings season are saying, hey, we're not seeing any slowdown yet, but acknowledge that uncertainty is still abound. So Gina Courtney says that parents are unsure. Are investors unsure? Do they know how to play this one going into the fall season? I would say that investors right now are taking it one day at a time. I think this is going to be a very, very long month in that so much has changed in the last 30 days. We don't know what will happen in the next 30 days. And this could happen one of two ways. It could be a very quick spike with a very, very quick recovery uh, timeframe, in which case uh, probably nothing will change. It will just feel very turbulent. Um, Or it could be something that lasts longer. And even if that happens, I do believe that the reaction by schools may be more delayed, meaning that you will still probably, I haven't yet heard any school system say that they're not going to have children coming back to school. So if that's the case, you're going to have to clothe your kid. Yeah, you're going back to school whether you like it or not, kid. Uh, Next up, drivers returning to rideshare platforms apparently isn't stopping fares from hitting record highs. New data from Rakuten Intelligence shows Uber and Lyft fares have increased month to month since February. And consumers paid over 50 percent more for a ride last month than they did in January of 2020 before the pandemic even began. Both companies have blamed surging prices on a driver shortage. But last week, Uber reported a 30 percent increase in U.S. drivers in July alone. And Lyft reported a 50 percent increase for the second quarter. So, Mike, what is going on here? Is this part of that sort of labor shortage story that we've heard about so much? Or is this a wage shortage story that we've heard about maybe a little bit less? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both of those things. It also is kind of clarifying about, you know, who exactly is the customer, so to speak, of Uber and Lyft. It's, it's really both. It's both drivers and, uh, and riders. Uh, but in this case, the, the power does lie with the scarce drivers. Uh, it also, though, I think it threatens to make these services a little bit less kind of effortless and ubiquitous and just you don't even think about it. You just call an Uber and it becomes a little bit more uh, of something you have to consider. And what's fascinating is it's happening at the same time. You have record increases in used car prices and new car sales. So it's not as if people are forced into to the rideshare model. Uh, it just does seem as if a very tight economy and a tight labor market are, are coming to bear. And it's not to the benefit of these stocks either. Not to the benefit of the stocks, maybe to the benefit of the drivers, though, and maybe ultimately to the benefit of the economy as those drivers then have cash to respend in all the things that they want to buy in their life. Something to watch there. Next, a pair of stock downgrades, both on inflation pressures. Deutsche Bank dropping Dollar Tree from buy to hold, saying surging costs for freight and wages plus its fixed $1 price point are squeezing margins. And Evercore ISI downgrading Darden, parent of Olive Garden, to inline saying rising food costs will likely limit earnings through next year. Dollar Tree is struggling to remain positive today, while Darden is down uh, more than 4%. So, Courtney, is this a case where we're going to see Dollar Tree is going to have to rebrand itself as $10 Tree in this inflationary world that we're living in now? 
It's so hard because you've got other dollar store plays, Dollar General, where not everything is a dollar. And so they have a little bit more room to the analyst point than Dollar Tree because that's sort of their competitive positioning. Everything is a dollar, which certainly makes it harder when you have costs going up. On the flip side, if people are really looking for a bargain, perhaps you have more demand. And then that helps at least a little bit offset some of that. Wages that Dollar Tree pays is about 11 to $12 an hour, sort of, of course, depending on the local laws and the municipalities in which they operate. But I understand the analyst's point, and this could be a tough one for Dollar Tree, although the company points out, look, we figured this out for 35 years, we're going to be okay. But I do think it would be one to watch, and margins would just have to be squeezed from what we're hearing about how much it costs these containers, uh, or it's costing these companies to pay for these containers to bring freight over from overseas right now. It's really a tight economy right now. Gina, so if you're an investor, same question to you on this one. How do you play it? What do you buy? So, you know, I think right now the inflationary story is one that seems to be creeping now rather than surging. Um, But that creeping inflation is happening in a lot of different ways. One, through shortages. I think Dollar Tree can certainly address their issues by changing their inventory to just cheaper inventory. They can make it work, absolutely. But will it necessarily be attractive to the end consumer? Maybe not as much. And I think that's what we're finding across the board is that we're just going to get less for the same amount of money. Fourth topic, and this one is perfect for vacation season. Finally, a federal judge ruling to temporarily halt enforcement of a Florida law prohibiting businesses from requiring customers to show proof of vaccination. The case was brought by Norwegian Cruise Line, which called Florida's ban unlawful. The judge granted a preliminary injunction allowing Norwegian to request that information from travelers. While the case heads to trial, Norwegian says it wants all guests and crew on its voyages to be fully vaccinated. Shares are down about 2% today. Mike, before I ask you whether you would take a cruise uh, like this without everybody being vaccinated, I guess the political question is a fascinating one, and I wonder how Wall Street sees it. Typically, Republicans and conservatives would argue, you know what, private enterprise should be allowed to do what it wants within basic parameters, right? So let them organize their business however they want. And yet here you have the state of Florida saying, you know what, we're going to put some rules around what you can and can't do, which would typically be sort of the liberal argument. So how does Wall Street see that playing out in all of these businesses throughout the economy that are all going to be struggling with this same exact question? It's a complete inversion, uh, you know, as you suggest, uh, Eamon. Uh, what is amazing, though, is Norwegian and other companies that are going to try and impose these requirements are strictly doing it out of self-interest, right? They're not wanting to restrict the pool of people who right. can it's profit use, motive, their, right? use their service. They feel it's a survival issue. And I, I think that's where uh, it's going to be very tough to, to separate that fact out uh, from, from the, even the political question. Wall Street is going to say these companies really need to be viable very soon, right? We, we've sort of floated them, so to speak, for a year, uh, and they need to actually ramp revenue. So this is the way they see clear to doing it. Maybe it's just an interim phase. We can all hope that's the case. But uh, right now, excuse me, those companies are definitely back on their heels. So, Mike, would you take a cruise if everybody was not vaccinated? Um, I have taken cruises. Let me just establish that uh, as a family uh, type of a vacation. Right, right, right. Maybe before the virus started spreading throughout the world. Uh, And Gina, last question to you on this topic. How do you see this playing out in the economy going forward? I mean, this is an issue that all of these companies in every sector are going to be having to deal with, right? Look, I think the weakness that you're seeing today is is just uh, is noise, because if you think about it, 
this is absolutely a case of survival. The headline risk is too risky um, for this company. And once they start booking cruise lines, and, and here's what I believe. I believe that there are more than enough vaccinated individuals who want to take cruises. The pent-up demand is very much there, that there's going to be no problem creating the, the, the revenue stream. Once you create the revenue streams, this is going to be a forgotten issue. All right. Thanks so much, Courtney Reagan, Mike Santoli. Enjoy your next cruise, Mike, and Gina Sanchez there. (laughs) Appreciate your time, everybody. And coming up, a look at how to make money in the housing market without selling your house. That's a trick. Plus, big moves for casino stocks today. We've got the rundown of all the gambling news of the day. Stay with us. And welcome back. Bank of America placing its bets on casino stocks this morning. The firm upgrading Caesars to buy from neutral. As you see, Caesars there up a scooch of 0.02% counts as a scooch, expecting the company's digital market share to rise. But B of A downgrading Wynn Resorts to neutral from buy because of its heavy reliance on Macau. You can read more on all of this from this call at CNBC.com slash pro. And a big deal in the online gambling space, DraftKings buying gold nugget online gaming for one and a half billion dollars. This gives DraftKings access to Golden Nuggets iGaming customers. And coming up on Power Lunch, Tillman Fertitta, who owns the Golden Nugget, alongside Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings. So coming up, donor-advised funds are supposed to be an effective way to give money to charity. But have they just become an effective way to steal cash? We'll speak to a billionaire, former hedge fund manager, who is blowing the whistle. You don't want to miss that. And welcome back to The Exchange. There's a growing debate now over some of the instruments involved in charitable giving, specifically donor-advised funds. New proposed legislation designed to change these types of funds is now setting up a big showdown in philanthropy. Robert Franks joins us now. Robert. Amen. Donor-advised funds have quadrupled over the past decade to over $140 billion. They now account for about one of every $8 that Americans give to charity every year. But philanthropist and billionaire John Arnold says the funds have become tax-free warehouses of cash, largely for the wealthy. Now, when you give to a fund, you get an immediate tax deduction, but there is no deadline to actually distribute the grant. So the money grows tax-free. It generates a lot of fees for the management companies, and it may not go to charity for decades or even generations. A new bill in the Senate would impose new requirements on donor-advised funds and change the way they operate. Joining us now is the philanthropist that is out to change all of this, John Arnold. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And it's great to be in New York. Yeah. Wonderful city. Right above Times Square. So, These funds have helped Americans give more to charity. If you look at Fidelity, they say last year they gave $9 billion in grants. That was up 24%. Schwab was up 35%. They have helped more Americans give more. What is the problem? So I'm part of a coalition that's trying to ensure that the philanthropic donations that receive a federal tax benefit actually make it to the community in a timely manner. So Laura and I both have a foundation as well as a donor-advised fund. What we're trying to do is think about um, how to make sure that that tax benefit aligns with, in a timely manner, that that money gets to the community. So in a private foundation, you have at least nominally a 5% spend rate. Right? Now, there are some big loopholes in that. But in a, in a donor-advised fund, 
there's no requirement to ever give this money. And the data bears this out. So last year, in 2020, when the call on philanthropic resources was perhaps its greatest ever, right, we saw 35% of DAF accounts didn't make a single dollar of distribution. Right? In the past four years, 10% of accounts haven't made a distribution. So while most of the DAF holders and DAF sponsors are behaving in a way that's kind of coherent with the intent of the law, there's too many dormant accounts. And that's what we're really trying to get at. And a lot of wealthy people say, look, don't mess with philanthropy. Don't regulate philanthropy. It already works well in America. They say this is essentially a solution in search of a problem because donor-advised funds, they say, give out 20% a year. And they say, look at Fidelity, they have a rule where if your yeah. fund doesn't give money for two years, it automatically takes 5% away. So can't they just self-regulate this? Does Washington have to get involved? So there are many DAF sponsors who are kind of acting in a good manner, right? They're requiring that those funds be active and be active in a material way, right? And Fidelity is one of those. So when we've talked to some of the largest uh, commercial sponsors of DAFs, right, the reaction is often like, we, we agree. Like, you know, it's, what we're proposing isn't something radical. They're saying that's logical, right? But there are some DAF sponsors who have virtually no requirement on activity. And that money can sit there in a wealth warehousing vehicle forever. It's received the tax benefit on day one, right? But that money never has to go to the community. And so that 20% number that you hear the, the industry throw around is kind of not legitimate for a couple of ways. Yeah, it, it, it just sounds strange. And I don't know how DAFs came about, but yeah. the idea that you can get a giant tax benefit today for money that sits there, it grows, it generates management fees right. for the investment companies, but doesn't get to the people who need it. Right. I mean, it, it does sound like it needs a fix. Right. And it's part of the tension in the system is these management fees. Right? So community foundations are a large sponsor of DAFs. Right? And the community foundations generally have a mission that says something like, maximize the general welfare of our community. Right? And so we've had many community foundations say, this proposal is right along those lines. Right? Moving money from investment accounts into the community is our mission. Now, we've had others that have looked at it and I think get seduced by the management fees from AUM. Right. right? right. And there's that tension because the more money that sits in the investment account, they the want more, it to sit more management there. fees. They, they, they have an incentive to want it to sit right. there and grow. But, but their main mission is yeah. how do you benefit your community? Right. And that's where the tension and the, and the debate's happening in the industry right now. Hey, John, it's Eamon Javers at CNBC headquarters here. Thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. You talk about getting this money out there in a timely manner, and it seems like the essence of what you're talking about is pulling money now to these charities from these out years, uh, you know, decades from now, potentially. Do you have an estimate of how much money that we're talking about coming from the out years into next year, for example, if you get the reform that you're talking about? So we have two proposals. One is that if you get the tax benefit up front, you get that tax benefit this year, you have 15 years in order to, to distribute the money. Right? So put a dollar in today, you have until 2036 to distribute the money. Right? The second option at the donor discretion is you can have a DAF account that has a much longer time limit, but you don't get that income tax deduction until the money goes to the community. Right? And so we don't have, I don't know offhand how much money that's going to pull forward, but it's going to be significant. And the charities that we talk to 
are very, um, very interested in this proposal to try to bring that money forward rather than just sitting in investment accounts. And, and John, you know, right now we're in this incredible debate about how to tax wealth versus work and that the wealthy billionaires get a tax rate that is much lower on their total wealth than the everyday American. Do you think things like capital gains, step up in basis should be changed? And how do you think they should be changed? So I think there is this great dichotomy between how capital is taxed in this country and how labor is taxed. And the marginal rates on labor can be exceed 50%. Right? And the tax on capital, especially because it can sit unrealized and compounding until death, and then you get this step up, might never be taxed. And that seems wrong to me, that you have these two sources of wealth that get taxed so differently. And so I think that we need to look at the step up that question of when you die, should that, you know, should you have that free step up in basis, yeah. right? And I think you, we need to have a conversation about what happens for those very long-term unrealized capital gains. It gets really complicated about what you would do with it. And some of, um, you know, there've been some academics that have proposed things. We funded some of that work, but I think it's a conversation that we as society need to start having. I mean, that, if that changed, that would hurt someone like yourself, correct? It would, it would, ironically, yes. All right, Eamon, another billionaire advocating for more taxes on wealth. Back to you. Robert, thanks so much. That's Robert Frank there. Important conversation. And coming up, do you have housing FOMO? That's fear of missing out, the kids tell me. We'll tell you how you can make money on housing without having to sell your house. That's next. And welcome back. The pandemic caused an epic run on single-family rental homes, and investors have been piling in and reaping those rewards. But what if you don't have the cash or the stomach to become a landlord? Well, there's still a way to get in, and Diana Olick joins us from Washington to explain how this works. Hey, Diana. Hey, Eamon. Yeah, so for as little as $500, you can own single-family rental homes or at least invest in a fund that owns the homes. It's a new offering from Fundrise, which started back in 2012 as a crowdfunding platform for commercial real estate. The company is buying thousands of brand-new homes from builders like D.R. Horton, turning them into rentals and offering the rental returns to small investors through one of their funds. It's a half-a-billion-dollar investment backed by a $300 million credit facility from Goldman Sachs. What Fundrise does is allows individuals to get access to private real estate at the same, if not better, terms as, as institutions. And that literally never happened before. And institutions are upping the ante in the market. Invitation Homes, the largest single-family rental REIT, just announced a deal to buy thousands of brand-new homes from Pulte Group. So Fundrise is a way for smaller investors to compete. But there's a red flag. This is not a quick trade. It's meant to be a long-term investment, so if you invest for a quarter, you know, it's probably not the right fit. But it, it is, it, there is liquidity every, every three months if you need it. But there is, the intention is to invest for a five-year or longer horizon. There is a 1% annual fee for investors. And again, Eamon, you don't want to day trade this. Back to you. Diana, thanks so much. Well, that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.